Welcome to the Think Yourself Healthy podcast, where we challenge you to think differently about your approach to health and wellness. My name is Heather Duranja, and I'm excited to be here with you to take you on the journey from surviving to thriving. Hello, everybody. On today's episode of Think Yourself Healthy, we have a special guest, Kimberly Johnson. She is a sexology body worker, somatic experiencing trauma resolution practitioner, yoga teacher trainer, birth doula, and single mom. She is the author of Call of the Wild, How to Heal Trauma, Awaken Our Own Power, and Use It for Good as well as the early mothering classic, The Fourth Trimester. She is the host of Sex Birth Trauma Podcast and creator of Activate Your Inner Jaguar, a real world understanding of your nervous system and embodied consent. Thank you so much for being with us, Kimberly. Thanks for having me. So I read your book. Thank you so much for the opportunity to um, read the book. I fell in love. So tell me a little, tell the audience, the listeners, um, how this book came about. This book, Call of the Wild, came about uh, pretty much just based on my journey from the past. And, and, you know, the book is about healing trauma. So my first book, The Fourth Trimester, was really, I was writing about an experience that I didn't have. Um, I was writing about an experience that I knew was possible for women to have. And I was hoping that as many women as possible, and I still do hope that, um, can be well taken care of postpartum and sort of helping people understand why that period of time is so important. And I wrote that when my daughter was about six and a half. And for me, it felt like my postpartum period was about six and a half years. And this book, uh, so, you know, I was writing about an experience that was so challenging for me to understand my own health and understand how all these parts of my experience fit together and none of my tools were really working. And then as a result of healing myself from uh, a postpartum injury that led to a bunch of other complications, I was exposed to thousands of women's stories and not just about their births, but also about gynecological trauma, medical trauma, sexual boundary violations. So I got certified in the modalities that helped me heal the most. And as a result of that, at some point I had practices in five different cities and huge wait lists. And I was really overwhelmed by how many people needed the work that I was doing. Then me too happened. Then I started talking about what that really looks like individually and culturally to heal from these power dynamics that we've inherited and, and are somewhat impacted by our biology and our conditioning. Mm -hmm. And then I just, at the time I was like, okay, how am I going to teach more? People were actually asking me, okay, I agree with you, but how do I do it? So I started teaching an online course, which was a huge risk for me at the time, because I was always used to being in a room with someone where I could touch them, where I could notice what was happening and make certain, you know, interventions. But I just felt like the need was greater than my own apprehension. And that course, Activate Your Inner Jaguar, just started getting, you know, more and more busy. It started out having 40 people and now it has 400 people. And then as a result of that, I decided to write about it in the book. I love it. Wow. So let me ask you, what does it mean to answer the call of the wild? 
what does that mean to you, Heather? I think it means something different for everyone. Yeah. Well, for me, it means stepping into my own intuition and allowing my inner heart to guide my decisions and choices and not let condition, you know, cultural conditioning um, be the basis for how I show up in my everyday life, especially when it comes to my overall health. I, you know, I myself um, have had a long health journey and um, I'm so grateful that at an early age, I chose to listen to that intuition. When I was 18 years old, I got diagnosed with a chronic autoimmune kidney disease and they told me I was gonna have five years and then I would need to be on dialysis or transplant and could not get health insurance because of a pre-existing condition. No one would touch me with kidney disease. And they told me that there was nothing I could do to change my prognosis, that um, if I were to have children, um, chances are it was either going to result in the death of the child or the death of myself. And um, shortly after this diagnosis, I ended up getting pregnant and having to go through clinics and I got very ill. It was a very traumatic experience for me. Um, and after the birth of my daughter, I realized I had to listen to that knowing within me and that what they were telling me did not have to be my fate. And that's when I chose to empower myself through seeking knowledge and experimenting with nutrition and lifestyle practices. So for me, it was a very empowering choice. Um, and there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of not really knowing how I was going to do this. We're taught that, you know, we're supposed to trust the doctors. We're supposed to follow their procedures and recommendations and that what they say is ultimately our outcome. And I just could not accept that for myself. So for me, that is how I answered the call of the wild, which has, you know, led me down this, this path. And um, I feel very blessed that I couldn't get health insurance because I feel that there's potentially, had that been a different circumstance, I don't know if I would have bought the kind of quality of life I have over the past 27 years since that day I was diagnosed. Mm. Yeah, I love that story. Um, do you remember after you, I mean, there's so many parts of your story, like one of them being for so many women, the wild, the call of the wild really occurs to them when they become mothers, mm -hmm. um, something shifts, something yeah. in them, um, a ferocity awakens that for some reason we couldn't awaken just for ourselves. But when it comes to protecting our kin, then some, some self-protective gesture kind of, um, but I think it's in wakes up, but I think it's important also to, I think people have this idea that if you um, dare to be disobedient, right? Because it's, it's about, you know, we're taught to be obedient and to follow the rules. And, you know, like you said, trust the authority, not your inner authority, but trust the authority. Um, they have your best interests at heart. And uh, even if your rational mind doesn't believe that, because I, that's the, the, most of the women that I work with, they would verbally be talking to us and they would agree. They would say, yeah, my body's my own and I can make the choices. I'm in charge of my body. But then when it comes into these power dynamics, 
whether that's sexually or with the doctor, they find themselves going along with things that they are just like, I don't know why I went along with that. Like, I don't think that, but in the moment, my body had this response, mm-hmm. which is part of what I'm trying to contextualize for people in the book is like, yes, that is a physiological pattern. Uh, but we can interrupt those physiological patterns if we start to identify them and if we start to feel them inside ourselves. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that you said is like, there was a lot of fear. I think people, um, if they look to someone like you or to like, or like me, who's outspoken, who's willing to go against the rules, who's willing to assume some risk for our decisions, they think that there's not fear. Like, oh, you're just fearless. Mm-hmm. No, it's, we're still human. We're still animals. We still are but we're, we're saying, but I'm still, I'm going to take responsibility for that mm-hmm. choice too. Right. And so many women are blackmailed into birth situations, especially, but also other healthcare. I mean, I've had, you know, in women's health, it's like, it's, I feel like diagnosis is like shooting darts at a dartboard, basically. Like, I mean, the things that people tell me, I'm like, and they don't even logically make sense. Like someone will say, well, I'm incontinent. And my doctor told me that I need a full hysterectomy. So I'm coming to you to prepare for surgery. And I'm like, well, you know, incontinence is your bladder, right? Like a hysterectomy is removing your uterus. So those are two organs that are connected fascially, but like removing one is not going to necessarily cure this other thing, but no one's really explained it. And they haven't really, for whatever reason, I mean, there's so many reasons why we get in these situations where we get disoriented, right? Um, you, if you've had earlier surgeries or earlier immobilizations or right now, uh, it's really important. We're talking on May 17th, you know, it's, we've been 14 months in the pandemic. A pandemic is a forced immobilization. We are, we can't do things or go places that we had been able to go before all those earlier immobilization responses can come to the surface. Mm -hmm. So people are experiencing way more anxiety than normal, way more depression than normal, but it is normal based on the circumstances. So Mm -hmm. for me, a call of the wild is it's both internal. It's, it's both something that I can hear and track just like a wild animal, like can feel where the water is and move towards it or, Um, can know when it needs to be still or when it needs to run away. And for me, it is also something external. That's the, the nature itself calling to me uh, because nature is the master regulator. Nature is, uh, you know, and we are a part of nature. We are nature, uh, but it's nature that's calling me to listen. Mm -hmm. So it's an, it's something that's calling from me internally and also calling to me externally. That's beautiful. I love that explanation. Right now, you know, with the pandemic and everything that we have going on, I see a lot of bullying happening within our medical system and culturally as well. There's been a lot of uh, shifts in the last week, specifically um, that I've seen happen. And a lot of the women that I work with have autoimmune disease and are being pressured bullied into um, feeling as if the only option they have is to receive the vaccination. And so for me, this is very alarming to see what's happening at a um, societal standard and 
I think that more and more people need to really step up and listen to that call within and question also, you know, the external things that are, are, are going on as well. So I think, well, I think that there's a lot of pressure coming from all sides right now. And what I see is that again, if, if we're in a double bind, which means you're damned if you do and you damn, you're damned if you don't, then that's going to cause an immobilization response. So if we are truly tapped into our wildness and we have a felt sense perception of how we are located in space, um, what is around us, our bones are echolocators, we can feel each other. And we do have a responsibility, not just to ourselves, but also to the other sentient beings that we occupy the planet with. Yet at the end of the day, we really have to live with ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And um, we're being faced with a lot of huge choices that, and, and small choices are becoming big choices. So I just think that it's important for people to understand from a nervous system level, most of the time people blame themselves. Well, why am I so tired? Why am I so exhausted? Why, why do I feel so anxious? It's like, well, because social media, number one, like we've never been inundated with so much information so fast. Mm -hmm. It's changing our brains mm -hmm. um, because the sands are shifting power dynamics are shifting, where we stand within those power dynamics are shifting. And ultimately, we're being asked to rectify some systemic things on an individual level. And that can feel paralyzing to most people's systems. And as you know, paralyzed systems don't digest well. Um, you know, and if there's rage or incomplete fight responses, those get turned inward. So I just think it's, you know, I see bullying happening on all sides and, and, but you can't be bullied unless you like, it, it has to do with how your own nervous system is. Right. Like, so I was just, it's just remarkable to me. I have friends that don't want to be around me if I get the vaccine because they're afraid of shedding and menstrual things. Then I have friends who don't want to be around me if I do, unless I get the vaccine, um, same thing with masks. And basically what we've done is taken something and imbued it with all kinds of meaning other than just the thing that it is. Mm -hmm. So it's just a vaccination. It's one or two shots of a vaccination, but, but then you can give it a whole bunch of meaning. You can throw all kinds of meaning on it about um, what it means about the future of our culture, what it means about your personal freedom, um, what it means about the medical industrial complex, what it means about your own system. And the, just like any placebo effect, if you put meaning on something, then it's going to impact you with that meaning. So mm -hmm. to me, it really has to do with what your nervous system state is, how much coherence and congruence you have with what the action is that you're making. Mm -hmm. And that congruence isn't just within yourself. It's also outside of yourself with all the other living beings that you're interacting with. Uh, I'm going to Brazil next month because my father's, my daughter's father's Brazilian and he, he doesn't have a visa to come to the U S and Brazil is in a much worse spot than the U S with COVID it's, it's rampant and um, people are not following any kind of rules. So their systems are overrun and I am going because my daughter hasn't seen her dad for two and a half years. And she really needs that right now. 
-hmm. some of my friends are like, it's amazing. You should definitely come here. Like just, you know, stay quiet. Da, da, da. Others are like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Um, I don't, you know, you're not going to see any friends. And it's like, I've just had to spend a lot of time trying to evacuate my mind of everyone else's voices and everyone else's opinions and everyone else's, because as like, I can't even hear that inner voice because there's so much static coming mm -hmm. from the outer world. Uh, and I think that's one of the most important things we can do is take care of our own nervous systems so that we can listen from what place am I making this decision? Am I making it from fear? Am I making it from power? Am I making it because I'm, I want to belong. I, I either want to belong with the anti-vax or I want to belong with the everyone needs to vax. Like, and, and it's as if we're, we've built a world where we don't exist unless we're showing what we do. So we're constantly, it's like, we're, we're analyzing before we've even completed an experience and that jumping up into the rational is a stress response. Mm -hmm. So I just think that my hope for people and my hope for our culture, because we're coming to some tipping points is that we can really situate ourselves in our own nervous system, not meaning we're regulated all the time or we're perfect or anything, but we can identify when we're in a state mm -hmm. because when we're in that state, that's all we see everywhere. So, you know, I've dealt with that a lot as a birth doula because as a birth doula, you're supposed to be kind of indifferent about people's birth choices. You're supposed to just support them in their choices. But when you're when you've been in the hospital a lot and you've been at home births a lot and you know about physiology, it's hard to go into the hospital when people have certain ways they want that to go because you just kind of know, well, that doesn't happen at that hospital. Right. But of course they want, they want to say, well, maybe it's, you know, lots of people say, I want a home birth in the hospital. And some people will say, oh yeah, that's totally possible. I'm like, it's not possible. You're in a hospital. Like if you want a home birth, stay at home. Yeah. Like you can have, you can definitely have a humanized birth in a hospital, but my point is just that as a birth doula, for me, it was really hard not to bring my adversarial point of view into a hospital because I was defensive of my clients. And also because I had an attachment because I believe that physiological birth is best for each person, both mother, baby, and culture. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to make a choice if I would attend births in hospitals, because there's no point of me bringing in my dysregulation and like adversarial part of myself that's not helpful for me it's not helpful for anyone right. so right now i see that that's happening we've been in this long period of immobilization and what happens is we pendulate so the pendulum is now swung to moral outrage and indignation and it's just like a fire hose spraying everywhere like whoever whoever you can project it on whoever is your identified enemy um, you're just going to go in that direction without discrimination because as you and i both know all vaccines are not the same um, you can really prefer some to others. Um, every system is not the same. So every system's not going to react the same. And, uh, and it, you know, we just have to be able to hold contradictory opposite, like apparent opposites. Like right. that's what, that's what we're being shown right now is like, there's multiple truths mm -hmm. and that's what maturity is. It's like, can we hold these multiple truths? And, and still love each other and be humane towards each other yeah. because 
that is not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing people treat each other horribly Mm -hmm. and like, can, can you disagree and, and still stay connected with someone? Right. Such a beautiful, beautiful point. So I have a question, you know, with, with this specific pandemic and the trauma that we have experienced, how does this impact our nervous systems? In general, what makes stress become trauma is what is not moved. So the things that get lodged are the things that become trauma. Otherwise it's just stress. Cause you know, life has all kinds of stresses that, and, and wild animals don't experience trauma, but humans do wild animals experience harrowing fights. And, you know, you see lions with gnarly scratches on their face and they experience droughts and natural disasters and all kinds of things, but they don't experience trauma. And the reason is because they go through a full nervous system cycle of upregulation and downregulation and discharge. And then it just leaves their system and they go on being their lion self. Mm-hmm. And they probably don't look in the mirror. So they don't, <laughs> they don't, they don't know that they're, <laughs> that they look different. Uh, and they just adapt, you know, cause I'm sure that they lose limbs or, you know, nails or all those things, but they just adapt and it doesn't linger in their system and make them Mm non-functional. So for humans and domesticated animals, we do experience trauma. And that's because a lot of times we inhibit reactions. Uh, We, we are conscious about how our actions are going to be viewed. And so we don't do like, for instance, lots of times, if you're under anesthetic, when you come out of the anesthetic and it's leaving your body, you'll shake. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll, it's adrenaline that's leaving the body. And sometimes if you're in the hospital, they'll try to, or even, even not, like people try to get you to stop shaking, but it's actually just your body's way of cycling through that and, and uh, biochemically eliminating whatever residue is there from the experience we've been through a a huge collective stress. How it's impacted people is different because as you and I know, some people are like, oh, the pandemic is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, Last year, I taught a course called A Lifeline in Quarantine. And uh, one of my black friends and I were talking about it. And she said, you know, all these things that I hear white people talking about, about afraid of losing their jobs or having to move. Like this is what people in my community deal with all the time. So I gave her my Jaguar material and she taught a course called a lifetime in quarantine because in that first six weeks of COVID, I was living in Brooklyn and it was really stressful. I mean, there was sirens 24 hours a day. There was ambulances all the time. Um, it was, it was an incredibly stressful and traumatized for for me personally, traumatizing time. Um, But in that time that I had friends calling it like capital G, capital P, the great pause in her family, she was having deaths. Her two of her uncles died. Her grandfather died. And I was just like, wow, these are like this talk about a contrast, like contradictory opposites. Like some people in my life are saying this is the best thing that's ever happened to them, mostly white people. And then other people are just experiencing like decimation of their communities. And of course, during this pandemic, we've had, you know, a whole new racial awakening in the country with like common racial language that 
has come to the surface and that we're having a reckoning with, with that. So, um, you know, I, my hope is that people, and we need rituals and we need ways to gather. Mm-hmm. So what I'm seeing happening is that people are like, okay, I'm vaccinated. And so like my assistant's working at the co-working space today. And I was like, how's that going? And she's like, it seems pretty normal. And I was like, so are you like social distance with masks or like what's happening? She's like, no, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to. And I was like, so are they like checking your card or like, she's all, no, it's the honor system. And I said, okay. And then we talked for a little bit. And then I said, Jess, um, if your heart starts beating a little faster in the next couple of hours, just that's enough and just go home because we don't have a good sense of, I have other friends in New York that are now returning to the subway. They haven't been on the subway for a year or something. And they're going to like Grand Central Station and and stores are open and all it's kind of, I mean, it's nothing like getting out of jail and it's kind of like getting out of jail because if you get out of jail, all of a sudden you're in this world, but no one's taught you how to relate in the world. You don't have, you don't have any practice. All you have practice with is that little small place that you used to be in with those rules. And now here we are, the, the bars are open, but what, what's, what are our expectations and how do we, and how do we deal with, you know, a lot, those of us who are, well, all, all mammals, but specifically females are, really trained to look at all these fine muscles in the face in order for us, we're doing it unconsciously all the time to scan for safety. We've only been able to see half of people's faces. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we've seen half of people's faces. Now I joke that like, you know, lowering your mask is like the new strip tease, you know, like, Oh, like what's, what's, what's below those eyes. Uh, It's a lot of stimulus to take. And even though it's biologically, yes, it's what we need. We, uh, we can adapt to things that are non-functional. So my hope is that, and this is, this is, gener- this is gonna be generations of work. This isn't gonna be like in the next five years, but is that we start to have a, a language for that so that we can really respect each other's boundaries and we can notice what's happening for other people so that we can help them through it. And that's what my hope is for my courses and my book is like, we become fluent in the language of our nervous systems so that we can also like, there is just resonance. So if you, you can regulate other people like grandfather clocks on a wall that start to swing together, but also that you we're we're just gonna, if we're not working together and we're not working out together, there's a way that we could just decide that we're going to have most of our life on screens. Mm-hmm. And it will start to feel like that's the safest thing to do because dealing with other people in the flesh will start to feel really activating, almost like having like agoraphobia and like, oh, it's just like too much for me to be around other people. But in fact, those other people are the exact things that we need in order to feel more grounded, more loved and more human. Mm -hmm. So how are we going to wrestle with that tension of like, I know, I know that I, I've gotten comfortable in this isolation, not, but it's not good. And, and like, I'm going to do that thing of like, okay. And I, I, we have to do it a little at a time. That's why just like the floodgates opening is, is really challenging to the system. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, I feel that 
most individuals truly are addicted to their nervous system response. We've become addicted to these hormones and neurotransmitters that are being released or released, keeping us in that constant state of survival. And so with so many so discon you know, disconnected, detached from their internal world, they don't really know how to recognize the signs and symptoms and they keep repeating patterns that are keeping them stuck, just getting that fixed. I work, I work a lot with mental health and substance abuse recovery. And so when you were talking about people, you know, coming out of this isolation, I see it happen all of the time with individuals who have gone in, they've done a 30 day inpatient treatment and then a 90 day sober living type of situation. And then when they get released into the real world, they panic, fear overcomes them. And then they end up self-sabotaging and, and being right back where they started and having to, you know, go back through the whole process again. And this happens. I mean, many of them, it's 10, it's 15, it's 20 something times that they've gone through this recovery process. So how do we, how do we start to get unaddicted to our nervous systems? How do we stop this cycle, this negative feedback loop that's keeping us stuck? Well, from a personal perspective, so just like what the individual is doing, I think the recognition of it on a felt sense. So um, what I hear in what you're saying is a capacity issue. So our system is only used to experiencing, you know, the riverbanks of our river are like really narrow. And if that riverbanks start to widen, they, they go, they close again because it's too much. Like one definition of trauma is too much, too fast, too soon. Right. So you get too much, too fast, too soon. And if you're going to flip that, what is the reverse of it is just the right amount, a little bit slower in its own time. I believe that our systems want repair. And that's a belief that I have from basically I'm a structural integration practitioner. So um, it's about efficiency and how energy works through us. I believe that the reason cycles repeat is because our system is giving us another opportunity to repair. Um, and if you think about that, that um, repeated pattern is like a record skip mm -hmm. and your system skips at that place every time, like maybe it's the, it could be physical. Like every time you drive by a certain place, you're reminded of that thing. And then the record skips and you do the same thing, or it could be, um, I really liked the that analogy that you used in the book for trauma and it being the scratch on the record because I thought that was a great representation and visual for people to understand how we keep coming back to that same place. And we can smooth over that, that scratch. And I think what happens is that we, we get so down on ourselves that there is the scratch, right? It's so frustrating. Um, we go to talk therapy and we know why we know what our mom and dad did. We know our genetic predisposition. We've got our panels. And so we've got all the, we've got all the information, but our system still hasn't been able to sustain a different level of capacity. It's the same thing of like people win the lottery and then become bankrupt, right? They just, they haven't developed the capacity to sustain whatever that new level of, of being in the world is. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so there's a lot of things that can help transition the scratch. And I don't usually work a lot. I mean, I come from an addict family, but I don't, that's not my specific forte. I think um, that it, it, you know, it is a very specific thing and there's lots of different theories about that, but about recovery and all, you know, everything that you need for recovery. But I mean, we, we need other people. So that's part partially because there's so much shame attached to these record skips. And if you're saying people are relapsing 10 or 20 times, you just imagine the compounded shame. Mm -hmm. And then you, and then you feel so shamed, then you feel disconnected and dissociated because you're just like, fuck it. I can't just feel anything anymore. And then that the cycle of remorse. And then I feel so bad about that thing. Right. It's just, it's, it's a cascade of things. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually there's a few things that I do. One of them is to take the focus off the problem. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to think we know what our problem is and then just keep scratching the wound and scratching the wound, thinking that that's going to make it better. Uh, a lot of the skills I teach are more fundamental skills that we all need that may shift some of those things. They won't definitely shift them, but they, they could shift them and they will at least give you the fundamental skills. Um, Can you give me an example of what, a, what you mean by a fundamental skill? Yeah. Like orientation being one of them. So orientation for someone who is in, we, there's a lot of new age information out there. There's a lot of psychological information that talks about, you know, if we just solve our own, if, if we just like become masters of ourselves type of thing. Um, and it means that we get really focused on everything that's inside of us and me, 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 and what's wrong with me. And why do I feel this way? And we forget to look out into the world. We forget to actually see what's literally see what's around us. And our screens are making us do it even more. We're like, and the screens are getting smaller and smaller. So uh, the blinders are getting tighter and tighter until even the way that we're interacting is, is provoking a threat response because if your eyes are narrow all the time and focused, that's what you do when you're stalking prey or you're a deer in headlights, your eyes are just fixed and narrow. So opening out your awareness and some of the time noticing where you are and what's around you. And some of the time being able to dip into what's happening inside of you mm -hmm. and to be able to toggle between those two inside and outside awareness. Now that has nothing to do with your kidney problem or my torn pelvic floor, or it has to do with a regulated nervous system, um, a well-regulated system, an animal will, do, you, if you observe an animal, they just do it naturally. But we have all these ideas, like you should have sustained eye contact and like whoever breaks it first must be less spiritual or have a problem or whatever. Right. Um, we would just be some of the time in a restaurant, we would be some of the time looking around at our environment, what's going on, da, da, and some of the time looking at the person that we're talking to and mm -hmm. some of the time looking around. So that's one of the skills. Another skill is filtering your own experience. So do you know when you're having a thought? Do you know when you're having a sensation? Do you know when it's an emotion? Do you know that if there's some tied knots? So if like an emotion is a thread, and a sensation is a thread. Do you know when those are tied in a giant knot and it's just all coming together? Mm -hmm. um, most of us live in the book. I call it times. We live in one of these channels, thought, image, movement, emotion, sensation. 
one of those is where we are most of the time. If you can start to switch channels, you can elaborate your experience and it's kind of like um, untangle some of these threads so that you actually know, oh, I'm, I'm actually not angry. I'm just feeling really hot right now or I'm not panicked. It's just my heart is beating faster. A lot of times I've had clients go to exercise and they don't want to get their heart rate up because they start to feel like they're going to have a panic attack. Mm -hmm. But it's just because there's a, there's a tied knot. It's called coupling of an accelerated heart with a panic attack. And then that's, there's a label and then that self reinforces. Mm -hmm. So those like orientation, parsing out your experience, um, learning how to orient to what's working right. Um, that's something that is a hard sell. People think it's avoidant. They think that it's, you know, we live in a Protestant culture that it was based on puritanicalism that thinks that if you're not working hard and you're not putting a ton of um, effort and you're having anything, you know, anything fun or pleasure is something that you have to earn and it's frivolous. Mm -hmm. But really with trauma healing, you actually can't help someone heal until they can feel things that feel good. Mm -hmm. Well, at least less bad. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for many, that's also where the shame comes in and inhibits them from being able to have that success because they don't know how to forgive themselves. They encompass themselves so much in that shame that the moment they start to feel that little slight sense of pleasure, it freaks them out and they go back to self-deprivation. For sure. There's, you know, I think one thing that I've learned in this on my own path of trauma healing is just really how much smaller things are than like pleasure, even the word pleasure, like Mm -hmm. people who are listening might notice that in their body, just that word already has a huge connotation for them. Like, Oh, I want that. Or I don't want it. Or I don't even know what that. Some people are like, I don't even know what that means. Um, and we associate it with hedonism. Like, well, if I get a little, I might want more. And what happens like, then I can't trust myself to not just keep, um, wanting more and more and more, Mm -hmm. but it really has to do with, again, a cycle of having an impulse, fulfilling that impulse, and then letting yourself be satiated Mm -hmm. by that impulse. And that's what our culture doesn't really do well. We don't have a lot of the down regulating the sort of integration. We go for these big experiences, big feelings, um, whatever it is, whether that's like breath work or ayahuasca or, you know, talk therapy over and over and over again. And it's really about, can you, can you sensitize yourself so that you can actually derive pleasure just from like right now, like right in this moment, when you're listening to this podcast right now, like what feels good to you? How are you sitting or are you walking? Is there something you could do right now to make your experience even more enjoyable? So is this where practice of gratitude starts to come in to help support one's ability to be able to connect with that? I think it can. It's never worked for me mm-hmm. um, because I, when I, whenever I say affirmations or like I do a gratitude list and cause I'm, I usually am only moved to do that when I don't feel good. Right. So I'm like, okay, I'm feeling whatever, depressed, disconnected. Let me write my list. 
my, I'm my inner critic and my, I can't trick myself. Cause I'm just like, you're full of shit. Like you don't actually believe this. You don't believe you're beautiful right now. You don't believe you're whatever. So I think for some people it really works, but the only way that it's effective is if you're actually feeling it as you're doing it. And for me personally, things like gratitude and forgiveness tend to be outcomes of other things that get completed mm-hmm. in my system rather than a top down. They don't really generate those feelings for me. But like I said, I know, I mean, there's lots of research about it and it works for lots of people. I don't really know why it doesn't work for me. I wish it did. Cause it seems like pretty straightforward, like just do the five things. And I, but I just never, it never works for me. I do. I, as an outcome of regulating my system, After, for instance, if you were going to ask me what I'm grateful for right now, like I could name things that I'm grateful for. But if I went for a walk for like 15 minutes and came back and sat down, then I would really have a lot more that I could tell you I was grateful for and really feel it. And you would feel it much more. So what makes that a different experience for you to be able to have more gratitude after the walk? I tend to have a more freezy nervous system. So Um, there's three layers of the nervous system. There's the social nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, and the parasympathetic nervous system. The social is a branch of the parasympathetic. I'm parasympathetic dominant. So that means most of my responses tend towards the prey side of a predator prey Mm -hmm. dynamic. And so I just tend towards freeze. People interpret it as like, you're really calm and you're so chill. And like, I, and, but that's not my inner, well, it is now is my inner experience, but for a long time it wasn't. So when I get some movement going, then whatever like underlying stress is kind of stuck mm-hmm. has a place to go. And then there's, there's a sense of calibration. And uh, I think that's in a very simple way. It's like, if you can notice your own system, you sort of know, do I need to accelerate or do I need to downshift? Mm -hmm. And it's, that can be tricky. I mean, I had um, Dr. Claudia Welch on my podcast and she's, she wrote this book, balance your hormones, balance your life. She's a um, Chinese medicine practitioner and an Ayurvedic practitioner. And so I was saying to her, well, if you're really tired, like, how do you know if you should lay on the couch or go for a run? Mm -hmm. And then she, she was like, well, what have you been doing in the last few months? You know, and of course it was like, well, I had a book come out and I'm a single mom and I'm a this and a that. And she's like, you should probably lay on the couch. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but there's also something in between going for a run and laying on the couch, right? Like there could be like, go for a walk or connect with a friend. A lot of times if you're in a freeze or in a mobilization, it's connection. It's the social nervous system that will bring you out of that um, because really we, we are so, we require so much mirroring and attunement and that's turning on us with social media because we have that need. We need to feel connected. We want to see faces Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't necessarily know that's what the impulse is. And then we go there and it becomes a comparison contest. And instead of the belonging that our system is really wanting, It flips on us and we're in the stress responses of the social nervous system, either fitting in or fawning, Mm -hmm. um, either in a comparison train or, you know, um, adjusting who we are to adapt to whatever it is that we're seeing. Right. So back to this. So when you were saying that you were having this conversation and you said, well, which do I need? 
Do you think that this is where a lot of people just lack the ability to trust their instinct? And so that's why part of the problem of not knowing how to tend to their actual needs, how do we develop that trust within ourselves to know whether or not we go take the walk or we lie down and allow ourselves the nap? Some of it's trial and error uh, and memory. Mm -hmm. So it's like you, you learn to know yourself enough. And as a female, like for me, a lot of it has to do with my cycle. Mm -hmm. So if I'm feeling really super weepy and low energy, I'm kind of like, okay, well, where am I in my cycle? And if I'm two days before I'm about to bleed, which is the day I usually get like maximal overwhelm, then it's like, okay, now's the time to like swaddle myself and drink something warm. And, you know, Mm -hmm. but if that happens to be day 10 of my cycle, then it's like, okay, maybe you need to move this a little bit and move it along. And now my cycles have gotten super irregular during the pandemic. I don't, I've been really curious the whole time, like, am I just feeling what's happening? And so it's just for this period of time, or have I been thrown into spontaneous menopause? I really don't know yet. Um, Right there with you. I was supposed to have a um, appointment last week to go to the gynecologist because I really wanted to have my FSH tested to see where it was at because I've always had the most normal cycles. I haven't changed any of my lifestyle practices. Um, and I've had irregulated periods for the last six months, like just completely whack. And I ended up starting early and so I couldn't go to my appointment. Now I have to wait another month. And I'm like, damn it, there's no guarantee with what's going on with me, whether or not I'm going to be bleeding again on the 16th. I'm like, this sucks. So I feel you. And it has, you know, it has got me really um, kind of questioning going, what is happening here? What is going on? Am I in that, you know, have I been thrown into menopause early? What is happening here? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's why when I was seeing all this, um, sort of research, not really research, but anecdotal things about women's periods changing post-vaccine. I'm like, everyone's periods. I mean, I don't know anyone who's have, it's, how could we be? We're in, I mean, look at what's happening around us. We are, we are responsive humans. Like the, the survival of the species depends on this. Mm-hmm. So I have had people, two people told me they ovulated twice this month. Um, you know, there's just all kinds of irregular irregularities with or without the vaccine mm-hmm. because, you know, and, and I don't know about you, I think we're the same age because based on your, I'm 46. I'm 45. Right? I'll be 45. Okay. A couple months. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'll be 47. So my mom started menopause when she was 55. So I just figured, cause my cycle has been kind of like hers, that that's how it would go. Um, but yeah. So, you know, the question was about how, you know, where you are at. For me, that's been confusing because that's one of the things I would use in order for me to orient myself a little bit. And unfortunately, majority of women can't use that as a tool because they've never been taught it. They've never even connected with that information. I mean, I have conversations with women on the regular and when you ask them, what day are you in your cycle? They're like, what? What do you mean? And so for me, it's very surprising, but I'm a very big advocate for using, you know, you tracking your cycle because you can use your cycle 
as a way to set yourself up for success with life, be able to show up with more compassion and grace by understanding the ebbs and flows and energy and mood and um, how to feed ourselves, how to work out. I mean, there's so much empowerment that comes with understanding our cycle. But with that being said, you know, many women start birth control at 12 years old. And so they never even have an established cycle. So how are they supposed to know? What, what kind of advice do you have for anyone whom, um, you know, has been on birth control for a long time? Well, these are all very personal decisions and some of them are, some of them we make, some of them feel like they get made for us. If you're 12 and you're going on birth control, you probably didn't totally make that choice. I'm mm-hmm. um, the same with antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Um, I think wildness, part of wildness is, is looking at those choices and seeing if those choices in the past are still current. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, anyone in any situation can start to understand their own system, but there are things about certain kinds of hormones and certain kinds of birth control that dampen our sense of our sensory input. So like it, it dampens our actual senses, touch, taste, smell, it, it changes the way that we smell. It changes, you know, there's a lot of research that we choose different kinds of partners if we're on birth control. Um, so I, there's nothing to be, a lot of times people think like that I'm critical of cesareans or I'm critical of these things. There's not, I'm not making a value judgment about a person. Um, if you're, if you are on birth control, you probably hopefully have really good reasons that you're on it. Um, it's just important to know what it actually is and what it's doing. Like if you're on birth control, you're not having a period, you're having breakthrough bleeding. Mm -hmm. And then to just get informed so that you can do as much as you can to support yourself in the natural physiological processes of elimination and um, you can replenish yourself in the ways that some of these things are depleting. Mm-hmm. We, ha- we also have to just be, um, especially right now, because there's, there's all of these, you know, in trauma language, we would consider the pandemic an inescapable attack, mm-hmm. which is the same category as a car accident. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, it's something that you can't see right? So it's an invisible thing. Mm -hmm. And so I I expect that a lot of people, and I know for myself too, are like, just really confused about why their normal lifestyle things aren't helping and they're escalating their self-care and it's still not really helping them lower their baseline of stress. Mm -hmm. I think we do need to accept that there's a lot of grief in the culture that we've inherited and if you can even call it a culture yeah right we're so disconnected um a lot of these things like people are making the choices so that they can continue to work jobs to continue to pay mortgages to continue living a certain kind of a life and if you if you answer the call of the wild sometimes the structure of your life really has to change a lot it's like you you can't just you don't just get to keep doing the same things you were doing. You really have to look at the relationships and the work and your pace and and who you get together with. And those are, um, those are, it can be really tough, Mm -hmm. you know, and 
it, it does require a lot of courage, you know, and Joseph Campbell would call it the right-handed path or the left-handed path. You know, the right-handed path is what we all know, like you go to school and then you go to college and then you meet your college person and then, and you do what the mainstream charted path is. And if you opt out of that path, it's challenging. And that is, we don't live in a cult. Most of us, some people probably still do have it, but you know, we don't live in a, in a culture that's honoring the seasons and the changing of the seasons and honoring how much daylight there is and shifting practices. And, you know, I mean, we really have to make a big effort. I I'm a single mom. So it's just me and my daughter in my house. It's such a different feeling when we go and eat dinner with another family, just eating itself changes when you're eating with more people and like the pleasure to share food with other people, the pleasure to have a leisurely time over food. When it's the two of us, I'm just like, Oh God, another meal. Like she goes, mom, remember that time in the pandemic when we had tuna for uh, tuna for lunch and macaroni and cheese for dinner. And then we would just flip them. Like then the next day it would be macaroni and cheese for lunch and tuna for dinner. And I was like, no, I don't remember that, but I'm so sorry. Like that was like the best I could do writing a book um, with no family and my daughter online schooling for 10 hours a day. Um, and in what it was doing to me personally, who's a body person who knows about nervous systems to watch a 12 year old sit in front of a screen, basically comatose for nine hours a day and sort of be like, but I can't really do anything else. Like, unless I just flip the tables and like move to, um, either my close to my parents or, um, you know, to some Island or whatever, like there's just, I don't have it. Like I'm, I'm trapped here in this system that is not working. And I think so many of us feel that way. Like this isn't working, but how are we going to, it's like, how are we going to make the leap to this new world that we can see and hope for, but there's just such a gap between here and there. So I always want people to be not, not to shirk responsibility and be like, well, it's the culture and like, I can't, you know, I'm helpless. And so, you know, I'm, but at the same time, like on a very deep level to, to, to realize that it's not a personal problem that we're having. Like if you feel lonely or isolated, that's not a you problem. That's a, we don't live, we don't even talk to our neighbors. We don't um, have any, you know, that's why I became so convicted about the postpartum time. Because I really felt like if we get the postpartum time right, we could actually repair a lot of these things. Because postpartum, we could ask our neighbors to bring us food. We could ask our neighbors to do, or they would just know to, right. to do that, right? Like you, you wouldn't even have to do the asking. Everyone would just, oh, it's obvious. Our neighbor had a baby. We can hear the crying baby. Let's bring her food. Let's bring her like herbal tea. Let's bring her oil that we made in our garden. Um, so that we can be so self-recriminating. But what I hear in some ways is like the people that you work with um, are kind of canaries in the coal mine. You know, it's like those of us who are empathic and sensitive and, um, and have these systems that have been deeply impacted by a lot of environmental circumstances over a couple of generations. And sometimes that can feel like a punishment, but I think that it to me, it's always like, okay, well, how, not how can I be different? How can I recognize who I am and act from how I know who I am? I call that knowing your code. How do I know my code? And instead of being like, well, I want to do something to make me more productive is like, 
well, actually, how can I just respect my own system? And as I write about in the book, most of everything, I mean, the way that our workday is scheduled is based on testosterone rhythms. It's not based on estrogen or oxytocin. So when I'm in business with men, it's like, yeah, they can work more than I can Mm -hmm. and not be depleted by it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't behoove me. And, and it's hard because if you say that, it sounds like you're admitting weakness or you're saying like, I'm not as good as you, but really I'm just saying, no, this is how I'm, I'm an estro- declining estrogenous human. Yes. And it's pulling from life reserves for me to try to work at that pace. Yeah. So, oh, Kimberly, I feel like we need to have a part two so that we can dive deeper just into that and, and the differences between, you know, how men heal compared to women, I think that um, these are all important conversations that need to be shared so that we can have a greater understanding and understand how we need to show up for ourselves to help heal individually and also help each other heal. I so, so thank you for your contribution to today's podcast episode and such great great conversation. So many beautiful, beautiful things that need to be addressed. So for the listeners that are listening and want to know more about your book, The Call of the Wild, how can they find it? Well, the big A is always a choice. Um, It's there. It's on sale. What can we do? It's uh, like great. That's a great example. It's like it's bigger than us, you know, but if you have patience and you like bookstores, which I happen to love, then go to your local bookstore and either hopefully they have it or ask them to order it. And it will take a little bit longer. But in the meantime, the first chapter is free on my website. So you can go to KimberlyAnnJohnson.com slash chapter and you can read the first chapter while you're waiting. The first chapter is the longest chapter with the most graphics. So you'll get the lowdown on that. It's also on Audible and I'm the reader. Uh, Yeah. And if you want to join a course that kind of goes along with the book, you can go to KimberlyAnnJohnson.com slash Jaguar. Um, and we do that about three times a year. And there's a sex edition Jaguar that starts every October. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for your time. We truly appreciate it. Everyone run out to your local bookstore, download the first chapter so you can get started on that. We do have the ability to change the things that are happening, but it starts at an individual level. Today, the podcast I received or released is all about us needing to take personal responsibility for our consuming choices if we want to truly have the ability to create change. So I love that you are supporting that as well. And I encourage everyone else to do their part, run to your local bookstores, support local. And in the meantime, she's been so generous to give you access to the first chapter which is, I fell in love. The first chapter was just like, wow, who is this woman? I cannot wait to talk to her. So thank you for all of the work that you do and the continued love and support you put out into your community. And if there's anything that I can personally do to help support you, please do not hesitate to reach out. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Think Yourself Healthy podcast. Make sure you leave a review and let me know what you think. I love reading your feedback. Come hang out with me on Instagram at Heather Duranja. And don't forget to take a screenshot that you're listening to the podcast and tag me. I love to share it. See you on the next episode.